again this Sunday and for the next six Sundays, we're diving more deeply into the ethical Buddhist teachings, the Eightfold Path. Remember, you can start with any one of them. They're all interconnected. If you were at Charlie's lecture, you saw an image of a wheel with eight spokes. All eight are needed to keep the wheel of life true, to keep it rolling along in a worthwhile direction. So today we look at wise intention or right attitude, starting with a classic teaching story. And both the Tao traditions and the Buddhist traditions claim this story. So one day, two monks, one old and one young, are traveling from one monastery to another. They're celibate monks, not even allowed to direct their gaze at women. And after a long walk, they come to a river, which they had to cross. The river is flooded, which I can't help but think about the Arkansas. And there is no way that they can get across without being wet. A woman is also at the bank of the river, wanting to cross, and she's weeping because she has to get across and is afraid to cross on her own. The monks decide to cross the river by walking through a relatively shallow part of the river. And since the woman also needs to get to the other bank, the older monk, without much ado, carries her on his shoulders. Without incident, they easily reach the other bank where he sets her down. The woman goes on her way, and the two monks continue their walks in silence. After a few minutes, the younger monk grows really upset, finding the older monk's actions really disturbing. As per their instructions, they are not allowed to look at a woman, let alone touch a woman. And yet the monk carried her on his shoulders all the way across the river. After a few hours, the younger monk grows really upset, ruminating. And he can't stand the thought of what had happened. The image, the indignation keeps filling his head. He finally speaks up and begins to re berate his elder. We are not allowed to look at other women, not touch them, but you carried this woman. Which woman? The older monk replies. The woman you carried on your shoulders across the river. The older monk, with a smile, pauses and says, I put her down, and you are still carrying her. So this story hits me squarely in my heart, because when I stop and realize how often I'm mulling over something that happened in the past, either 50 years ago today or five minutes ago. Whew. I'm spending a lot of time on mental energy of things I cannot change or control. 
and the effort of my obsessive thoughts aren't just lost time, but the thinking always places me in the center of the action. It's self-serving and self-centered. And I don't mean that we can't think about ourselves. Of course not. Nor do I mean that we can't think about the past. Of course not. How can we not? But being hogtied by those thoughts, wearing a, a mental and neurological groove in my mind, is unhelpful. It blinds me to the present. One commentary on this story describes these neural pathways involved uh, describes that these neural pathways involved in the monk's thinking, one is lust and sexuality, and is completely different from survival and rescue. One is greed, the other care. Touching someone to satisfy your own physical needs is different than touching them to save them. The motivation matters. The story has to do with knowing the true intentions behind our actions. Having a wise or right intention not only influences what we might do in each moment, but in the next, and in the next, and in the next. And this is how the Buddhist ethical rules play out, by influencing what we do in each instance of life, creating this chain of cause and effect, and the accumulation of intentions influences how we are here today, right now. The younger monk has done something we all do, judge the situation from his perspective. Perhaps he struggles with his own lust and can't imagine the older monk has a different motive. Or he tends to be a black and white thinker, binary rule follower, imagining his monastic teachings contain no grace. I cannot tell you how many times I have misjudged a person or a situation blinded by my own narrow interpretations or perspectives. Thousands of times. The older monk has judged too or rather discerned what truly lies at the core of his values. He understands the wise intent behind his vows. At the heart, his monastic rules are behaviors that value life and interconnectedness. He is committed to saving life, helping human creatures as best he can. You know, some situations, require you kind of stepping around one rule to follow the deeper one, the deeper truth. So just as we imagined last Sunday that wisdom that comes from the first fold, wise view or wise thinking is, so, is similar to this Hoberman sphere, After eight, I'm going to need a big spot, just so you know, get building. I have in mind something else to portray wise intuition. Imagine an onion or an artichoke where one layer 
reveals another until you get to the heart of the plan? Or picture wise intention stripping away the shells of a Matryoshka doll. It work, it's work to reveal what lies inside to get to the core, to find the essence. For the older monk, this core is compassion and loving kindness. He sees how we're all interconnected and here to help each other as much as possible. And that's what drives his actions. The younger monk, I'm not sure he ever got past that first layer. He's still stuck in lust. You know, I value how the Eightfold Path encourages peeling away these layers to allow a nuanced response to each situation. And this same attention to core values lie at the heart of our Unitarian Universalist principles. They make room for taking action that may differ from context to context, situation to situation, as long as what lies at the heart is the heart, a universal compassion. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote in his famous letter from the Birmingham jail, urging white ministers to understand how their futures, their souls, are tied up with the fate of all black persons denied rights. His intent in both protesting injustice and petitioning for with uh, his intent in both protesting injustice and petitioning for justice are exactly the same. He writes, in a real sense, all life is interrelated. All people are caught up in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I'm what I ought to be. This is the inner related structure of reality. When we treat our own Unitarian Universalist principles, there are seven of them, and, we, and when we don't treat them as a linear list, but also treat them as a wheel, connecting the last one to the first, we actually create a similar moral document, instrument, sympathetic to the Eightfold Path. Specifically, when we hook that first principle, the inherent worth and dignity of every person, with the seventh and last, respect for the interdependent web of all existence, of which we are a part, we commit to honor each other, each individual. We commit to honor ourselves, as well as that weeping woman who couldn't cross the river, 
as well as the young monk who took his vows literally and narrowly, and the older monk who could see that network of mutuality. So at the center of wise intention is keeping love and compassion as the primary, perhaps only, drive for everything we do. Everything we do. As a friend said last week, so we'd all just end up adoring each other. Yeah, imagine that. Loving kindness for all. Except, if uncovering our pure intentions were easy, we would all be adoring each other right now and wouldn't need these other rules and tools. We could go out into this beautiful rainy day and skip skip the sermon. It's okay. Charlie's already given you the scoop. But then he wouldn't be able to teach and we wouldn't need religious practices and traditions. We wouldn't need philosophy. So lofty and pure intentions are nice, but let's be realistic. How often do your intentions match your actions? Hmm. If I were to put a percentage on it for me, I think I'm being generous, but I'd say maybe 50% of the time, which is actually assuming I even understand my own motivation. That's a challenge, too, to be completely honest or even aware about your motives and intentions. I used to go to the grocery store and always buy certain lovely foods, and I knew I was being a good mother. It was for my children until they went off to college, and I realized I still had to buy that lovely food and keep it in our... (laughs) Oh, right, it wasn't for them. I'm more like the younger monk thinking I'm doing what's best, when in reality, I'm just whipped out by unseen and unexamined forces. Many I choose not to see. They can be painful. But because Buddhist teachings are rooted in human observation, in the observation of what we human beings are really up to, It has millions of data points over thousands of years. The tradition has made a hearty list of obstacles that block acting on our wisest and deepest interpretations. Some of you may have picked up this card. They're out by the door if you didn't get one. Although what it says is there are five hindrances, which the Buddha named, five classic primary challenges or obstacles. And the the word hindrance is a little misleading because our competitive culture wants to divide the world into right and wrong, which is why we're not using right intention, we're using wise intention. 
you might hear mental hindrance as something that you can fix or remove. But instead, think of them as your own personal grist for your own personal mill. They are the contents of your consciousness, all of us, of all our consciousness. And instead of wishing them away, we can invest our interest in them. We can be curious. The poet William Blake wrote in The Marriage of Heaven and Hell that if the fool would persist in his folly, he would become wise. Keep watching your mind just as it is, turning its poison into wisdom. That's the path of spiritual enlightenment. So simply observe how the five hindrances show up for you when they show up for you, where they show up for you. Just be curious. And we tend to, to favor one hindrance over another, those that are deeply involved in social justice tend to be the anger types. So, the first layer, the first hindrance on the list is sensual desire or greed. And it's not just about sexuality, although it could be, like the story. You know, a friend just told me a story about the 1970s when she was applying to graduate school, and the professor was interviewing her. And she'd never met this professor before. And he walked around the desk to her and took his hands and put them on her knee and then slowly pulled his hand up to her thigh. This is 50 years before me, too. She froze, not knowing what to do, and spent hours, I mean, spent years at the college. She got in. creatively avoiding this teacher as much as possible. So his hindrance of sensual greed ruined his ability to teach and ruined his ability to teach her. But the same sensual greed on a smaller scale, less life-shattering, could simply be always expecting the temperature in your house or in your office or in your sanctuary to be exactly what suits you. You can't be happy unless it's exactly at 69 or exactly at 75. Greed is anything we cling or grasp to without seeing how much it drives our own actions. We often desire what we don't have, friends and food and lovers and notoriety and power and material possessions. Having a preference, preferring to to drive an expensive car is one thing, but grasping, having to have it to be happy is where suffering comes in. So the second... The next hindrance is ill will or aversion. We tend to push away things we don't like. Anger is a powerful energy. We use it to accomplish that. 
when we rage or act out of anger. We do it to feel better immediately, you know, after that catharsis. But what we've done is dumped our painful feelings onto, one, onto another. Then it's not long before we feel worse. We're still mad, didn't solve the problem, and now we feel kind of guilty and, oh, that wasn't very effective. Or, ooh, I didn't rage enough. I need to do, I need to slam the door, whatever. And it's not, we may try to cope with this miasma of feelings by going over the whole story in our minds again. You know, I have a right to be angry. You know, yeah, right, right, right. And again, these defensive strategies effectively blind us when we feel that someone deserves our angry attack. We're indulging in hurting them in order to eradicate our own hurt. Hurting to hurt, to get rid of hurt. Hurting to get rid of hurt never works, never works. The third mental hindrance is sloth or torpor. And these aren't terms we often use, and I love saying them, torpor. Sloth and torpor show up because we're accustomed. Oh, and we, we Americans, we're accustomed to the stimulation of constant desire and aversion. We are entertained nonstop. And some people become tired or deflated when these stimuli are actually absent. Sloth and torpor are the forces that drain vitality and limit effort. And sloth manifests as a physical absence of vitality. The body may feel heavy, lethargic, weary, weak. You know, it may be difficult to keep the body upright when you're sitting or working and resting. And torpor is the state of decreased physical, physiological activity, like an animal, like when an animal hibernates. And here it means a mental lack of energy. The mind may be dull. What'd you say? Clouded, weary. It easily drifts in thought. You know, being caught in sloth and torpor can feel like slogging through the mud. And discerning these are hard because we're in a culture that rewards and values a frenetic pace. So the fourth hindrance is restlessness and worry. Have you been in one place or with one person yet want to be somewhere else or with someone else? Can you learn to be satisfied with your current situation? We're conditioned to seek happiness outside of ourselves. Maybe you frequently second-guess your decisions. If only we could be, if only I could. Each of these four hindrances are actually taught as obstacles to a regular meditation practice. So this last one, this last hindrance, is a disruption of whatever spiritual work you choose. Doubt. 
coming here to church, daily meditating or praying, reading a poem a day, writing in a journal, making a gratitude list. Doubt and faith in our spiritual practices often arise and then pass away, depending on the criteria we're using to measure success. So the first step in working with doubt is to try and move away from incessantly judging, evaluating what's going on in your practice. Those times you say, you know, this Sunday, that sermon on those five things, that just didn't do anything for me. I wanted to be on a cloud of bliss, and that's not what happened here today. So it must not work. Or you might say to yourself, you know, I still struggle with anger and despair, so why am I wasting my time writing in this gratitude journal or keeping a journal? It's all for the birds. We need to be willing to go through the ups and downs without getting disheartened. When doubt arises, just try to recognize it as doubt. Realize that this spiritual work, this life, this gathering as a community are constantly changing states. We can't freeze what it means to come to Hope Church. So the point of paying attention to each of these hindrances is to notice which ones keep you from seeing most clearly into that beautiful, deep pool of your own wisdom and compassion. Again, let me remind you, we can't get rid of them. Instead, we befriend them. Notice them. It's important to have a friendly relationship with these hindrances, not adversarial. I encourage you to notice the hindrances that work through you the most. Hold it gently. For this week, notice. Hold it gently and with compassion. Peel away whatever distortions are covering up your core of wise intention. May it be so.